I, um, I loved college. I loved studying. I've enjoyed courses that I've taken over the years. I enjoy everything that I've ever done. But one of the things that I learned in a hurry was when a registrar wanted you to go through a class, and a lot of times they were picking classes for you, and it didn't maybe matter to the registrar who the professor was. You just needed this credit done. And those of you who have been to college, you know what I'm talking about. But I learned pretty quickly on that it wasn't always the class. It was the professor that could make all the difference. And you could take some classes that were just, you just dreaded. If you could get the right professor, that professor was going to make that class come alive for you. I remember when I was doing a speech and communications major that uh, I wanted to hear from some people from the third world. And so I was able to get classes from people who lived in the third. Africans are the best storytellers in the world, people who grew up in Africa because they grew up with an oral tradition that has been passed down from them in the generations. And if you've ever watched the movie uh, Roots, how many of you remember that story of how, you know, Kuta Kinte was lifted up by his father, you know, and he whispered in your ear, this is the only thing greater than you, you know, up to the sky. And he takes his son when, he's a, uh, when he and his wife are in slavery, and he lifts his son up in that plantation because, you know, he wants to pass this on. There's this tradition of learning how to tell stories. Well, I found the same thing to be true with books. If you really want to get into a book, whether it's in the Bible or whether it's in um, a college class or whether you're taking a leadership course, you want to study the author. You want to know who the author is. And if you can read about the author, if I read a book on leadership, I want to know that the person that I'm taking time to read a book on leadership has actually led and has actually been a good leader. I, I want to know that if I'm reading a book on, uh, you know, how to repair a car, if I was to read a book like that, that I was reading from somebody that knew how to tell me in a book how to repair a car or sales or whatever it was, you want someone that's had some success there. And we started Sunday morning by looking at the life of Peter. And as we looked at the life of Peter, we understand that sometimes we get these, these images of Peter in our mind because of the artwork or because of the Sunday school stories we've had, and we've never really studied his life. And we find out that Peter, remember, he followed Jesus for almost a year before he ever really committed his life to Jesus. You know, it was about a year from that time where, you know, he says, you're going to be called Cephas till the time that uh, Peter, you know, says to him, depart from me, Lord. And of course, we looked at he really didn't want that to happen, but he was just aware of his sinfulness. We looked at Peter all the way through how that he made that great confession of faith Sunday morning and how he told the Lord, he says, you know, you are the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, this is so cool. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My father did. And then 15 minutes later, Jesus is telling Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. So we're learning a lot about Peter's character. We looked at his denials on Sunday morning. However, where I left off at was how that the Holy Spirit made this impactful difference in the life of Peter, and Peter became this, he really did, he lived up to his name, the rock. He lived up to his name of what he was supposed to be. You know, he's not the rock upon what the church is founded. The rock upon the church's founding is the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
But when you look at Peter, and let me just run through some things I jotted down real quickly. You see in chapter 1, he presides over the appointment of Matthias. You see in chapter 2 of Acts that he's the one that explains what happened on the day of Pentecost and preaches. In chapter 3, God uses him to pray for a man to be healed. In chapter 4, when Peter and John are seized after the miracle, it's Peter that does the explaining and the talking. It's Peter that handles the case of Ananias. It's people. It's Peter who that the Bible says his shadow would fall upon people and they would be healed. It's Peter who confronts Simon the sorcerer. It's Peter who goes in and prays for Tabitha. And it's Peter that goes in and prays for Ananias. And it's also Peter that first that reaches out to the Gentiles. But it's Peter also that Herod throws into prison. And you remember, Peter is just so cool and calm and collected about it. Peter goes asleep between the guards and an angel of the Lord comes and has to wake Peter up. I wish there was a man sitting on the front row because I'd come do to you the Peter. He slaps him all that. He says, wake up, dude. It's, you know, there's a miracle happening. And did you know sometimes there's miracles happening around you and you don't even realize it? You're just kind of dead to it. And you're kind of asleep to it. But there's a miracle happening. And Peter, of course, you know the rest of the story. He, he leaves the prison and the guards are in all kinds of trouble. But eventually, the church gets scattered. The church really gets scattered. And Peter is this incredible man that is used of God in the same way that you can be used of God. And Peter writes to a church that is suffering. And when I'm talking about suffering, let's just be realistic for a moment. Most of the suffering that I deal with with people when I talk to people about suffering it's relationship suffering that they're experiencing. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's a loss of job. Maybe it's a financial reversal. Maybe it's a divorce. Uh, all of these things are terrible, and I don't mean to diminish anybody's suffering, but these people were being hunted down. They were being tortured for their faith in Christ. They were losing homes. They were losing their jobs. They were, they were losing their identity because they were being kicked out, even though most of them were Jewish Christians. The Jews had made so many deals with the Romans at that time, and the Christians would not do what so many of the Jews would do and say, you know, burn a pinch of incense. We looked at this in the, in the book of Revelation, you know, and say Caesar is Lord and Jesus is Lord as well. They just simply took this stand for Christ. And so they're being hunted and tortured, and God anoints Peter. He's a pastor. He's an apostle. And God anoints Peter and says, I want you to write this letter. So it's important that you not only know the author, you know a little bit about his background. He did not have a stellar start. You know a little bit about his background that even once he made his confession of faith in Christ, he still didn't understand things because Jesus will tell him in Matthew 16, you're only seeing things from a human point of view and not from God's point of view. He's the one that bravely will pull out his sword as we looked at Sunday morning, but he'll also deny Jesus three times. I didn't have time to deal with this Sunday morning. On the resurrection Sunday when they found out, you know, John was the good Jewish boy. John did not go into the tomb because you would have been ceremonially unclean. You, cut, you weren't supposed to do that. Peter, he's that salty fisherman right on. He ignores the rules, and he rushes right into the tomb where the dead body had been laid. So you see, this is, you, you understand a little bit about the character. He's baptized in the Holy Spirit. He becomes this dynamo for God. God uses him. 
He takes the gospel to the Gentiles. He explains to the early church because they just could not fathom that Gentiles were being saved. And he says, look, he says, there are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're here tonight because of that. But then he also comes to this place where the Holy Spirit uses him and he writes this letter to these people that he's preached to and he's pastored. And he's writing to a suffering church that's in an area of what we know as Turkey now. And we kind of think that the way the cities are listed here, this is the way that the letter was distributed. And we talked about how that happened as well in the book of Revelation. So let's look at this message tonight because the first chapter, if you was, this is not in your outline, but if you really wanted to write something down, this is what I would do right now. I would write down author Peter. Second thing I'd write down, written to suffering congregations. And now in chapter 1, I just simply say, Peter is going to explain to us what salvation is all about. He's going to explain to us what it means to be born again. And the first thing he does is he, he says to us, God chose to make us his holy family. God chose to make us his holy family. So I put that there as my first number one or Roman numeral one, however you wanted to do that. God chose to make us his holy family. Stand with me, if you would, just out of respect for the word of the Lord. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Now, I know the word is exile there, but we'll, I'll talk about that in a moment, but I want you to think family. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. When you look at this, you can be seated, I'm sorry. When you look at this, there's several things I want you to see there. These people are scattered and dispersed not because of unfaithfulness. We're used to seeing that in the Old Testament, that the Jewish people are scattered because of their unfaithfulness. But these people are scattered because of their faithfulness. And even though we're looking at the word exiles, I want you to see how Peter writes and describes this. He says, God chose to make us according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, God chose you. You didn't choose God unless Christ drew you. It's the reason that sometimes you'll hear me say on a Sunday morning, you know, if you're not, and, and I, I say this when I really feel that check in the spirit, I need to say this because I, I know somebody may be struggling. Even if you choose not to give your heart to Christ today, you know, don't walk away thinking this is your only chance. God deals with people. He dealt with Peter, remember? He says, you know, Peter, you're going to be Cephas. And then for about a year before Peter ever crossed the line, you know, he kept building this relationship with Peter. But notice here he says, God the Father. There's a relationship here. He knows that Jesus has taught that you're going to be sons and daughters of God. He knows that Jesus has taught how to pray, our Father. And you'll see all of this develop this is really big for Jewish Christians who may not have seen Jesus and for Gentile Christians that were reading this in the first century who had never seen Jesus, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Gentiles wouldn't have understood this, but Jewish people would have understood this. And that was to be sanctified didn't mean that all of a sudden that you did everything right. It just meant you had been set apart for God. You had been... this. 
this pulpit has been set apart to use in this sanctuary for me to preach with. My, my wife bought this and gave it to me a couple of years ago. And she says, you know, I just thought you'd like to have this. And we've used it. I pray over this. I came in here. I anointed this pulpit with oil. If you were here those first few Saturday nights and you come up and you pray over the pulpit, you'll remember there was a big oily cross up here because Becky and I just dedicated this pulpit to the preacher that's sanctifying. It's set apart for the word of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit sets us apart for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In other words, I just think it's important to see here Number one, you see the doctrine of the Trinity. You see that revealed so clearly here in this passage. For those people who say, you know, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, I know that. But here you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number two, you see where he's saying we're God's family, but this world is not our home. This, this culture is not our home. This world is not our home. And the third thing, grace and peace is not a fuzzy, warm feeling. Grace and peace is the character of God. That's, he says, may grace and peace, in other words, may the grace and peace be multiplied to you. The very nature of God be multiplied in your life. So this little introduction is more than my dear John Anna or my dear Estel, this introduction, this, 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 this salutation here, there's a lot of information contained there. Number two, what I'd want you to see is, why does God save me? God doesn't save me because I'm good. I mean, why did God save Peter? It's not because Peter was good, but God saves us because of his great mercy. It's mercy that you're saved. It's mercy that you've come to know Jesus Christ. Let me see if I can illustrate like this. How many of you know the story of the prodigal son? You know the story of the prodigal son. Okay. You know the story is not really about the prodigal son. We preachers, we talk about that a lot. But Jesus is not really talking about the prodigal son. He's talking about the elder brother. That's what the story's about. Jesus has been doing life with the tax collectors. And if you were here, I preached on this one Sunday morning. He's done life with the tax collectors. He's done life with the drunkards. He's done life with the, the prostitutes. He's speaking not to the prodigal sons, the ones that says, look, all I really want from you is your money. That's all I want from you. I want your money. Give me your money, and I'll take off, and I'll go live my life the way I want to. He's speaking to the religious leaders, people like myself, this is who he's talking to, and he says, this elder brother, he didn't really love the father either because this elder brother, he kept all the rules. He was a good guy. I don't see Peter as having been the good guy. I see John as having been the good guy, but I don't see Peter as having been the good guy. Peter was that salty fisherman, and Peter broke all the rules, and it was mercy that saved him. It's never hard for a guy or a woman who's broke all the rules to go, man, how great is the mercy of God. That's the reason John Newton's song is so powerful. Can I tell you what's hard? It's for good people to realize how great is the mercy of God. Because they're honest, they don't steal, they don't cheat, they work hard. He said something I could never have said to my daddy, and that was, not once have I ever disobeyed you. Could you say that to your mom and dad, not one time that you ever disobeyed them? He said, not one time have I ever disobeyed you. And yet you're throwing this party for this wastrel son of yours. You're spending the resources of the farm upon him. 
And he says, son, it's only right. He's looking at the goody two-shoes guys. It's only right that we should celebrate. Your brother was lost, and now he's come home. He's been restored to the family. Son, please come in and celebrate with me. And the elder brother would not do it because he did not understand mercy. He thought, everything I'm getting from you, I've earned. I deserve it. The younger brother realized, I wasted it all. It's a lot easier to reach the tax collectors and the sinners than it is to reach the good people who think they're not sinners. And that's what Jesus is driving at here. This is what the Spirit of God is driving at through the Apostle Peter, and that is the great mercy of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What's he doing? He's bringing them back to the cross. He's bringing them back to the cross so that they would understand how great their salvation is. He wants them to see, you've been born again. And I know that's not a term we like to use much anymore because it's been so politicized and they still use it. I heard it used on the news the other day, the born-again movement. Friends, to be born again means that you're a Christian, means you're a real Christian, okay? All Christians are born again. So to say I'm a born-again Christian, that's kind of like redundant. When I went to um, India, I always order a chai tea latte from Starbucks sometimes in the winter times when it's hot. I mean, when it's cold because it's a hot drink. I go to India. I ask for a chai tea latte. Everybody laughs because chai and tea mean the same thing. I was, you know, being redundant. And so they said, if you ask for a chai latte, you're going to get hot tea with milk. So, you know, I learned a little something there. So born-again Christian, you know, are you a born-again Christian? That's kind of like saying I'm a Christian Christian. You know, if you're born again, you're a Christian tonight. Can you say Amen. That's what he's trying to help us to see right here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. And as a Christian, he's saying then that we've got a new set of virtues. We've got a new set of priorities to our life. To be born again, well, you've got to stop and think about that. Where did Peter hear this from? He heard it from Jesus talking to a guy There was a good guy, Nicodemus. Nicodemus wasn't a Peter. Nicodemus was a good guy. He kept all of the rules. But somehow or another, he was attracted by Jesus, and he came to Jesus, said, by night, because he didn't want anybody to see, he says, Jesus told him, he says, look, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom. Now, Nicodemus goes, And there's a little something going on here I'll let you in on. Nicodemus knows better than what he asks Jesus. Nicodemus says, can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, no. Because in Jewish thinking, the man was born or the woman was born, the child was born when the seed entered the egg. And so to be born again Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, is your old life will be gone and the new life of God will come into you. 
That's the reason that was such a hard saying for the Jews to accept. To be born again of the will. How many of you remember this word, begotten? The only begotten Son of God. And then that word, that word King James, it's a good word because begotten simply was a, was a, was a uh, Middle English way of saying life came from the Father. And that's what he's saying right here. You've been born again. Notice there's no feminine here. There's no feminine word in this at all. He has caused us to be born again. Why? His life is in us. The old has passed away. The new has come. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I pray that you have hope tonight. I know when people begin to to fall aside or fall by the wayside, whether it's in their career, their marriage, or even in their faith walk, is that they lose hope. You have a living hope in Jesus. It's the reason we talk about dreams a lot around here and dreaming a lot around here. Because when you have a dream, it motivates you. What's the most famous dream speech you can think of tonight? Probably like me, Martin Luther King. His speech, if you read his whole speech, and if you watch the whole speech, it's kind of dry. It's kind of dry till you hear somebody in the back of the crowd say, Martin, talk about the dream. Martin, talk about the dream. And Martin Luther King leaves his prepared notes, and he begins to go, I have a dream. And when he begins to talk about the dream that's in his heart, he leaves his prepared script, and suddenly it becomes alive. That hope lived in him that caused him to overcome the bombings and the threats until finally somebody snuffed out his life. Friends, when you have a hope, you can barrel through the gates of hell. And it's so important to understand, and I don't know why I'm preaching so loud to, to so few people tonight, but I, this is living in me tonight. Understand this. Fear is what keeps people from becoming what they're supposed to be. Fear is what holds people back. When you have a dream, you've got to decide whether you're going to have the courage. The Bible says, and, and this, I'm, I'm telling you this because it just fits right here. The Bible says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And yet I see so many believers hesitating to be the passionate followers of Christ that God has called us to be. Friends, the gates of God has called us to move against the gates of hell. Hell is not going to move against you. Gates cannot move. Gates can't move. Well, if I do this, the devil may do that. I don't want to get the devil. Forget about that. These people were suffering. And Peter says, you've been born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the, from the dead. What's he saying? If death couldn't hold him down, it's not going to hold you down either. And then let me just skip ahead because I wanted to talk about heaven, but I don't have time. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. And he's talking about the salvation we receive. And let me just list out some things that is your inheritance tonight. Being born again is a gift from God, but your inheritance is, according to Psalm 16, 5, Lord, you alone are my inheritance, my cup of blessing. You guard all that is mine. So I would put, what is my inheritance? I'd put down, God is my inheritance. 
Secondly, because of his grace, he's made us right and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. What is my inheritance? My inheritance is also eternal life. Third, what is my inheritance? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5 that the humble will inherit the whole earth. And, and, and fourthly, tonight, my inheritance, I will receive and inherit eternal life. And then fifthly, tonight, I will, Jesus, the Lord himself, will give us an inheritance as our reward. I, I would jot these things down, and then I'd begin to run just with my concordance, or if you have a computerized Bible, I'd just run through everywhere where I could find what my inheritance was. Well, i got to keep moving this evening. Next thing is, Peter says he's explaining our salvation. You've not only been, you've been born again because of mercy. You have a new life. You have new virtue. You have new priorities. You have an inheritance. Um, I, I will take a minute to say this. Um, when we adopted our children, one of the things that, first things that we did was we went and had our will redrawn. It was just Becky and I. And I will never forget, we adopted Andrew. And so we went and had our will redrawn. And although our assets were meager at that time, you know, Andrew's name went right in there. I, I can remember it wasn't very much, but our, our tithe what, you know, of our estate that would go to the Lord, something we wanted to go to missions, and, and then how Andrew would receive our inheritance. Christopher was born. Went back to our attorney again. We went back and said, Joe, I need you to rewrite this. And we had another. And we, we did that all four times because my children are going to receive something when I die. One time Benjamin told me, I told you this on a Sunday morning, Benjamin wanted something. I said, son, you know, you're going to have to save for that. That's just not something in our budget. And he just looked at me. He was just a little kid. He says, why couldn't a rich family have adopted me? <laughs> You know, he was beginning to understand inheritance at that moment, you know, and resources and things of that nature. Well, when we go through those times of trial, my sons, and I remember we said this, and all of this is negated now because of their age, but how they would have received their inheritance, mainly because at that time of life insurance, <laughs> how they would have received their inheritance was going to be proportional to their college education and to their state in life. And upon the advice of our financial advisor, uh, they wouldn't receive their full inheritance until they were 30 years old. So they would have gone through times where they had an inheritance, but they would have felt like they not had very much. And tonight you may feel like I don't have very much. You have got a great inheritance in Christ. And I think, and please understand, when I say I think, you're free to disagree with me, but I believe with all my heart I'm still right. Okay, are you listening? Sometimes the reason some people don't walk in more grace and more peace or more resources than what they need is because they haven't grown up spiritually, they haven't matured spiritually to the place where they can be responsible with the gifts that God wants to give them. And that's the reason at 30, our children would have received their full inheritance because they wouldn't have gone and blown it on a sports car. Does that make sense? And so Peter is writing about this. They're going, 
if we're children of God, why is all this happening to us? Well, he's going to go on, and he's going to give them a reason for that. And he says, God gave us his word so that we could persevere through trials with joy and glory. You will not persevere through trials if you don't know your Bible. You will not persevere with joy. Matter of fact, I would even go so far as to say this, and I I know that a lot of people don't like this, but you won't persevere with joy in trials if you don't really sit down and study systematically the Word of God and begin to memorize some of those significant portions of Scripture so that when fiery trials come, you're not unnerved by them, you're not thrown to the side by them, Peter writes something here that's just like what you read in the book of James, just the book just prior to this. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. What is in this? If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory and obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, let me go back to the author. Peter had seen Jesus. Peter had touched Jesus. Peter had walked with Jesus. Peter had reached out and pulled Jesus aside one time. We looked at that Sunday morning. Peter knew him, but he says, though you've not seen him, I've seen him. I've been an eyewitness to these accounts. And he goes, though you haven't seen him, you love him. And I think what is in his mind is what Jesus said to Thomas. Thomas, you believe because you've seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen me. How do these early Christians who were being run out of their homes, losing their jobs, being hunted by Jewish authorities and being hunted by the Roman government itself, how were they surviving? Because they had had a real encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ. Though they had not seen him, they had still experienced the life of God being put into them that they were born again. Their virtues changed, their desires changed, their lives changed. So what the apostle is saying to them is, is, therefore, we can face trials with confidence. We can face trials with perseverance. And we can face trials with courage. We can face trials with confidence, perseverance, and courage. Now, confidence is born out of hope. It's born out of faith. Perseverance It's like we've looked at in this whole series of messages I did on Sunday mornings. It's not just gritting your teeth. It's the guts or the courage. It's the resiliency. It's the integrity. It's the tenaciousness to follow Christ and the courage that comes. Becky and I, having pastored for so many decades now, we've met all kinds of people. We've walked with all kinds of people through all kinds of events in their life. I just, there's probably not anything you could think of, whether it's been from family breakups to murder to whatever you want to talk about tonight that we haven't walked people through and pastored people through. It's just some horrible times. 
And yet, out of all those years, I can go back and I can point you to the people who stopped fearing the gates of hell because they knew the gates of hell could not move. They kept pressing through. They kept pressing through. They kept pressing through, not gritting their teeth, but they kept pressing through because they knew if they could stand the pulling, God was going to pull them through. They knew their confidence was in Christ, and whether they lived or whether they died, they knew where they were going to be. I have been moved so much over the years of stories of missionaries. You've come back of people who've literally given their lives, given their very lifeblood, and at times their children for the gospel of Christ. One father during Pol Pot's regime, when his son broke and ran for the, for the jungle, he called out to him, stop, come back, do not deny Christ. And the gorillas mowed them down. That family went to heaven together. That's a confidence. I can point you to times for men like J.W. Tucker, who rather than flee, stayed and preached. His family was evacuated. He stayed and preached in the midst of the, of the war in the Congo. And J.W. Tucker, who was from Georgia, they not only murdered him, they chopped his body up and tossed him to the crocodiles. I've often wondered, what's it like for Pastor Tucker in the kingdom of heaven today? You see, hell wants to scare and move people. They were trying to scare the early church in Turkey. And Paul says, listen, don't deny Christ. Don't forget how great this salvation is. I just got done telling someone today who said to me, do you really believe that unless I confess Jesus as my Savior, I won't go to heaven? Yes. I don't believe that. And that's because I said to them, you don't understand sin. If you understood sin, you would understand how great and how wonderful the cross is. If you would understand that what, Paul, that what Peter says here is that we have been redeemed. Jesus paid a price for you to redeem you. Recently, I heard a group of, of believers talking about that we shouldn't use that word redeem. Friends, if we don't use that word redeem, what other word are we going to use to talk about the blood that Jesus Christ shed for us? We're redeemed because of what Christ. Jesus bought us back. It was his blood that bought us back. That's what Peter meant in that first thesis through the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Which brings me to the closing of this message tonight. The first part of First Peter is God came to us in Christ. God came to us in Christ. In First Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, the Scripture says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Do you realize that Isaiah and Ezekiel... Do you realize that Malachi and Joel, they long to know what you know tonight? Do you realize that Jeremiah longed to know? They, 
God was using them to talk about a time when the Messiah would come. Isaiah has been called the, the gospel in the Old Testament. God wrote these prophecies, and they longed to see this. They studied, they inquired carefully, inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. Don't miss that sentence right there. They were serving not themselves but you, you and me, and this church, the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Look at this last phrase. Things into which angels even long to look. Isn't that an incredible statement? That angels even long to look into that. <laughs> Next week when we come back and we look at the rest of 1 Peter, we're going to see what the big deal about being born, not just the price that was paid for us, but what's the big deal about being born again? I saved a story years ago to my files and attached it to my studies on 1 Peter when he talks about persevering. This man was on a cruise and he was a widow. His wife had died. And one night he saw this rather attractive woman on the cruise line and he smiled at her and she smiled real big back at him so he finagled away at the dinner that night to sit at the same table she was in and he thanked her for her smile that night she says well you reminded me of my third husband he goes oh how many times have you been married she said twice in other words she came on that cruise with a vision of finding a third husband he came on there with pain and hurt. But she came on there with a vision of finding a husband. Now, I'm not recommending that to anybody tonight to go on a cruise hunting for a, because, you know, never mind. But what I am saying is, <laughs> what I am saying is, keep a vision of heaven in your heart. Keep a vision of why salvation is so important. Because if you'll do that, then you will live as a passionate follower of Christ. I don't live as a passionate follower of Jesus because I fear going to hell. I just can't believe that he loved me as much as he did. I was a goody-goody two-shoes. You know, I went from sandbox to sandbox searching for reality. You know? I told an Episcopal priest that asked me to help do communion. I had virgin lips until I took communion in his church, you know, and drank the wine. And I, uh, it took time for me to come to terms with the fact that all of us have sinned. And I mean, I heard it screamed at me so many times in sermons when it suddenly hit me the way Jesus would have said that, all of us have sinned. Jesus wasn't angry when he said that. He loved us. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I love him tonight. I know, I've never seen him, but I know him. I know him, and secondly tonight, my identity is not 
in the world. My identity is with you. It's with the church. What this world thinks of me matters very little. My family is the church. I want to be a good citizen, and I want to love people and serve people. That's not what I'm saying. But I don't get my identity from the world. My, I'm a part of the family of God. And that somehow or another, we truly are brothers and sisters in Christ. Our Father is the same. The blood of Jesus in our lives. And tonight, we're all white in here, but in our Sunday morning services, there are Filipinos and Hispanics and black people in our church. We're all the same. We're the family of God. He's going to write to them as he continues on with this, this, this book. He says, you're exiles, but you're the family of God. You don't get your identity from what the Romans say about you. You don't get your identity from what the Jews say about you. You don't get your identity by what the world says about you. And I think it's appropriate to dwell on this right now because we are in danger of losing the beauty of that phrase, born again, because we've allowed the media to politicize it. To be born again is about much more than being pro-life or pro-marriage. To be born again means that the life of God himself is in us tonight. And the old life has passed away. And we've all been born again of the Spirit. I'll try to come back to that next week. But it's one of the few times that a feminine phrase is used when it comes to God. One of the few times... Because after all, where did women get their femininity from? They got it from God. I mean, I grew up on a farm. You never saw the rooster hovering over the little bitties. Jesus says, how often I would have gathered you the way I am. The Spirit of God had been born again. The life of the Spirit. And then the third thing I would say tonight just from these first 12 verses is expect more because of God's grace. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Expect more. Expect more of the grace of God in your life. There's more to this than what you've experienced yet. There's more to this than what I've experienced yet. Expect more peace. When you go home and put your head on the pillow tonight, Expect peace. Things may not be where you want them to be financially. They may not be where you want them to be health-wise. They may not be where you want them to be uh, business-wise. They may not want to be where you want them to be relation-wise. But when you go home and put your head on the pillow, expect the peace of God to be given to you while you sleep tonight. Expect the grace of God. And what is grace? Grace is when God gives me what I don't deserve. And over and over what I read in the Bible is how God wants to bless me. I know Benny Hinn. I've known Benny Hinn for years. I'm so glad he stood up and disavowed some of his foolish teachings. But I want to see the fruit of that repentance. But I remember when Benny had a white, hot heart for God. I remember because I used to drive him all over the South before he and Suzanne got married. You see, there is more. There is more. But you don't have to manipulate people, and you will never manipulate God. When I say expect more, 
I've never told you one time, if you'll give $1,000, you're going to be blessed. You will be, but I'm not going to manipulate you that way. I'm just telling you, expect more. If you need financial help, expect more. If you need relational help, expect more. If you need peace, expect more. If you need help with your children, expect more. Grace and peace, the character of God, be multiplied to you. Would you stand with me tonight and let me pray with you before we go home. Lord, we give you thanks this evening for this great salvation. We've been redeemed from sin. Lord, we've been redeemed from the things of this world, not with good works, God, not with sacrifices of our own, but by the pure blood of Jesus. We've been set apart, just like this pulpit is set apart. We've been set apart for you. We belong to you and not to this world. And because we belong to you, Lord, we have an inheritance. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to mature and to grow and to come to the unity of faith in Christ that Paul wrote about to the Ephesian church. So that, Lord, whatever battles we come up against, God, we will progress against them and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Help us not to fear, but help us to dream, Lord. Help us to dream of what it will be like, not just in heaven, but when the will of God is done upon this earth as it's done in heaven. And one more time, we say thank you for being so willing to love us and adopt us into your family. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Good night.